Good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It comes right after the book of Proverbs. My name is Fritz Games, and I'm pastor of Redeemer. And uh, it's a privilege to serve here. Thank you for your prayers uh, this week for my family. Thank you, Jake, for those prayers. Um, I said I wouldn't start by talking about my dad, but I think I'm going to, because uh, it really illustrates this passage that we're about to read. Um, I was telling somebody earlier that the dad that I grew up with, his face was not always favorable towards you. He was kind of old school and very tough and stern, loving, and all those good things. But we would always use this phrase, the eyes have it. He would find us, you know. And, but as he got older, God began to change him, and, his, and his, really his whole disposition began to change. And um, his demeanor, and, and there was nothing... Nothing that brought me more joy than seeing his face as he got older. It was just always full of joy and gratitude as he saw God not only love and provide for his children and grandchildren, but also for his own sin. It's just beautiful, uh, beautiful to see this. And so when I received the news from my brother... I, I wept and I, and I grieved, but I tell you, what kept coming to my mind, what kept coming was this picture of my dad's grinning face, and it was radiating, and I just started laughing with great joy because I knew that he was in the presence of Jesus, and that changes you. That changed him before he went into the presence of Jesus, and as we begin this passage this morning, we're really, as you're going to see in verse 1, you're going to see a person that's got a radiant face. And yet, it is in the face of great adversity. You're going to hear three different types of adversity, or even evil. You're going to hear about a tyrannical ruler, hypocritical church, or Christians, and thirdly, just good old injustices and increasing evil in response to that. So please hear God's word. But we begin this morning with a radiant, wise face. The preacher asks, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. Doesn't that sound so hopeful? I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. 
For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man has power over a man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is hebel, a mist, vapor, smoke. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a hebel, a mist, smoke, vapor, that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also Hebel. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his labor through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However man, however much man may labor in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's again pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the one that all of the Bible points to. Thank you for the honesty of your word. Thank you for the truth of, Lord, what is, what is promised by you and what we know to be true and very often what we experience. Thank you that this book really brings the intersection of those two things together and speaks honestly about it. Lord, we pray as we sit under your word today that you would once again allow us to sit at the feet of Jesus himself, the very word of God, that you would allow us to rest in him, to listen to him, to hear him. Lord, that you would indeed speak words of truth and words of delight and that they would be like firmly fixed goads resourcing us to navigate this world full of adversity with joy and with wisdom. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. So joy in the face of adversity is what we're looking at today. The passage that Jake read from Romans 5 speaks of rejoicing in sufferings. One of my favorite passages, right? Just love it. Corey Ten Boom in her book, The Hiding Place, speaks of fleas. She says this, she said, God, God gave us grateful joy because we had God amid the horrid tortures of our concentration camp. My sister and I learned to give thanks for the fleas that we had. The guards wouldn't go to the flea-infested places, but God would, and He met us there and gave us joy. That is what this text is about today. It is the flea-infested places in which we live. It is the world in which we dwell, and yet this text is asking a question in the midst of those flea-infested places, can you really have joy and wisdom? Can you really have the resources to navigate this life with both joy and wisdom? In other words, he's saying this, he's asking this, when all of the faces that you see around you we will see tyrannical leadership, hypocrisy in the church, and just good old evil flourishing because it seems like no one is judging it. When that is what we see, the faces that surround us, in the midst of that, can we see the very face of God shining upon us? Because if you do, it will give you the resources to have joy and wisdom in the midst of that. Here's your outline for today. I'm going to give it to you because it is not in the bulletin. And this was my best attempt at getting at this. The first point is this. Verses 1 through 15, the ugly faces that surround us. And secondly, the joyful face in the midst of that. Okay, the ugly faces that surround us and the joyful face in the midst of that. Look at verse 1. We are back to what we have called traditional proverbial wisdom. If you do this, this good thing tends to happen. If you live like this, good things tend to come your way. And traditionally, that is often the case. If you work hard, you will provide, etc., etc., and that's verse 1. He asked the question, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? In other words, who is like a wise person? There's no one like a wise person. It is exalting this, this person that is both wise and secondly, joyful. Look at the second thing he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. In other words, this isn't cosmetic. This isn't from the outside trying to look good to present an image, but a man's wisdom, that which is deep in his heart, has changed him in such a way that him or her has a face that shines and radiates. 
And the hardness of this person's face is changed. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that what we desire? If you struggle with a hard face, right? A stern face, a stern countenance, right? It's probably because your heart has some image of God that His face is stern toward you. And yet it shows a wise person who has been changed by God. In my Friday morning Bible study, as we were studying this, everybody had their chance to comment. And one of the last people in the Bible study said this. He said, man, I just want to be that person in verse 1. I just want to be a person who has such joy in their heart that their face radiates. Isn't this what we all want? And yet, even though he pictures this person who is wise and has this radiant face because they are resourced with something deep within, what we're going to see is that that joy and wisdom is tested. It's tried in a furnace of sufferings and adversity and actually evil. And the first of those is this. Verses 2 through 9. Tyrannical leadership. All right, Fritz, where are you getting that? Look at verses 2 through 5. Again, this is traditional proverbial wisdom. I say, this person I'm talking about, this wise and joyful person, is the type of person that knows how to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Don't be hasty to go from his presence. Don't, don't take your stand in an evil cause. For this king has absolute authority. This king, this president, this superior, he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who can say to him, what are you doing? If you have a teenager, they probably say that all the time. But the wise person says, I'm not going to say that to the king. In other words... Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. This is traditional wisdom. This is the wise heart. It seems to go well that this person is so wise and they navigate life so well, they can go into the king's presence and they have absolute peace with the king. Right? This is a wise person. And yet, we begin to see something else. Look at verses 6 through 9. For there is a time and a way for everything. Sounds great. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, etc. And then look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Literally, verse 9 says this, when man lords it over another to their detriment. So do you see the picture? You don't just have a king and a superior or a boss or maybe even the head of the household who has absolute power, but they have absolute power and they use it for their self-interest and to the detriment 
of those they are there to serve. Do you see the picture? What he's saying is this, the traditional proverbial idea that a wise person who knows when to answer a fool according to his folly and when not to answer a fool to his folly, right? That's the wise person. And they're actually joyful in how they navigate life. He says, okay, that's all great, but this is going to put some stress on them. When they have a tyrannical leader, it gets very difficult. And verse 8 says, there's no getting out of it. Once you're in battle, you're in battle. Can't get discharged. You see the picture. Wise people with joy typically know how to navigate things. And yet, when you have a tyrannical leader or a boss, spouse, coach, or even a church leader, when they use their authority in ways that they shouldn't, it stresses that, doesn't it? Proof. I have friends and you have friends that no matter who is the president of this country, they want you to be mad. Do you agree? Last president, I had friends over here, they just could never have a smile on their face about life because of who was in office. And they wanted to push that on me. Why aren't you upset? Okay, I'll get upset with you. And then another leader. And what happens? Why aren't you upset? I literally saw a friend I hadn't seen in a while, and I said, how's it going? Good, except for our president. And I was like, come on, really? See, when you have authority that, that you think is, is tyrannical, whether it is or not, it just, it just stresses that system, doesn't it? That's the first face we encounter. But the second face, verse 10, is hypocrisy in the church. You don't think, you know, look, look at this text. I, I did not understand this at first. I thought, well, what is he talking about? Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Who are these wicked people? Basically, he is saying this that it sort of defeats our joy when we see people who are religious. They go in and out of the holy place. They go to Bible studies. They go to churches. Maybe they lead in the church. Maybe they serve in the church in some way. And they're praised by men, and yet at their heart, they're wicked. You see that? It's confronting what Jesus confronted in Matthew chapter 6. Good old religious hypocrisy. And what it's saying is this second face that we see, again, it puts stress on the system. And you begin to think, well, this is just how it goes. And they seem to go to their grave, and it's like nothing happens. Things just go on. Is nothing done about it. When I was growing up in our church, and let's just say the youth group, we all had chips on our shoulder. Um, but we all knew who ran the church. It was, a, it was sort of a joke. Even adults knew it. 
there was a lady named Miss Smith, and she was the choir director and the song leader. And it did not matter what the deacons decided or what the church may think. Miss Smith ran the church. And, and I've joked with y'all about this before because the proof was always in the Christmas play because Miss Smith's son, Scott, was always Joseph. And we were just always a bunch of shepherds. And every Easter, when we had the Easter egg hunt, Scott always got the big silver egg. We're like, but well, this isn't fair. Just no one sees it. Well, that's, that's nothing. That's just a kid who's grown up and can't move on, right? But some of you have really suffered at the hands of this, right? Maybe it was your parents or church leader. or Maybe it's current things going on. And you ask, like, does God see this? Does God care? The third picture is this. It's just good old-fashioned injustice with no noticeable temporal judgment. Let me say that again. Good old-fashioned injustice with no noticeable temporal judgment. Look again at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, in this case, the religious person, the hypocrite, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Look at verse 14. There is a hebel that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Do you see the injustice here? We've seen this before. In chapter 3, verse 16, the preacher said this, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. You go to court, You've been wronged, and what happens is you're wronged more. Someone takes the knife, and they turn it more, right? Chapter 7, verse 15, I've seen the righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and the wicked man who prolongs his life in evildoing. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who worships, and as we said before, him who goes to brunch on Sunday morning. It doesn't seem to matter. And the result of this, again, verse 11, literally it reads this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of human beings is full in them to do evil. Do you see how this, this logic works? Okay. In other words, he isn't in verse 11 just giving us a systematic doctrine of sin. That's true. That's inferred from this text. But what he's giving us is the doctrine of frustration. Do you see that? It can sound like a good proof text for the doctrine of sin. Man's heart is fully set to do evil. But that's really not what it's saying. It's saying that when you see evil go unpunished and judgment is not executed speedily, it just makes you want to do evil. You get frustrated and impatient when things are not put right. Can we say that regardless of where you fall on this political issue, that it's not just political, that the things that have been done in this country for three to four hundred years in many ways, is because there was not 
speedy judgment. And there's long-term frustration with it. There's a couple things on this. Think about it. When things are not judged quickly, the person might think, well, that's how life works. So I'll just sort of jump in and do it too. I'll I'll just give up trying to do right, right? Or secondly, probably more to the point of the text, we take up judgment. In other words, retaliation. Well, no one is punishing this, so I will punish this. An eye for an eye. Psalm 125 says it like this. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. In other words, it's the doctrine of frustration. When it seems like, okay, God, you said, here's everything, and it's for my people, and you're going to inherit You're going to inherit the the whole earth. The heavens and the earth are going to be yours. And yet what we see is that's not the case. Wickedness seems to prosper. And it leads to the doctrine of frustration. Cormac McCarthy, famous writer, said it like this. Rain falls upon the just and unjust fellows. But mostly on the just because the unjust take their umbrellas. See that? Do I need to say that again? Understandable. Here's the picture. You have wise, joyful, resource living being stressed because the faces that it tries to live under tyrannical authority, hypocrisy in religious people, and injustice and delayed judgment And it's basically saying, what do we do? Is there not a judge? Is there not a king? Is no one doing anything about this? You may have never heard of this. Somehow it slipped my understanding. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 7, I was reading in preparation for Ecclesiastes, in, in case Solomon did write this, about Solomon's life. He was the king, right? And it it describes in chapter 7 of 1 Kings when he builds his house. And it says he builds his house and he builds this and he builds this. And then a couple verses in the middle there, it says he builds a hall of judgment. I'd miss this. In Solomon's house was a hall of judgment where people would come, where they would bring their cases to him and the good, wise, loving king would judge. Right? Remember the two ladies that came arguing over the baby? And he made that great judgment. And this text is saying, that's what should be true. So it seems like there is no judge, there is no king. And yet, here's the kicker. Look at verse 15. Right in the middle of this, once again, you have one of the receive the day phrases. If you've not been here, There are five of these in the book of Ecclesiastes. And right in the middle of this confusion and the doctrine of frustration in verse 15 is the doctrine of received living as a gift from God. Listen to what he says. And I commend joy. I want you to feel this. 
Do you see what he's saying? Tyrannical leader, right? Hypocrisy in the church that's probably wounded you, right? Just good old injustice and unpunished evil and just the frustration and the evil that responds to that right smack in the middle of that, what does he say? I commend joy. Wait a minute. I thought we were going down the road of pessimism and cynicism. Here we go, and we're going to complain about this and complain about that. And Fritz has been complaining for a whole point. He says, nope. The word is laud. Isn't that a beautiful word? Praiseworthy. I praise joy. I commend joy to you in the midst of these faces. Boy. That's crazy. Sounds like some over-the-top optimist, right? Idealist. He doesn't know what he's talking about, or he does, because he knows of a greater wisdom and a greater resource, joy. He says there's something better. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun. Yes, you're tempted to complain. Yes, you're tempted to strike out. Yes, you want to join the masses in all their frustration and live as if this is how the world's always going to be. And he says, I don't commend that. I commend something better. I commend something, a wisdom that you cannot get from this world. I commend joy. Listen, I says it again. See, I, I was not expecting this right in the middle of this. I commend joy for nothing. Man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his labor through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You see what he's saying? Doctrine of frustration Doctrine of joy is better than that. Three quick things about this. First of all, this is not pie in the sky. This is joy that is mixed with confusion. You've seen it all through the book of Ecclesiastes. You've got to see this because otherwise you're going to be a messed up Christian and not a realistic Christian. He continues to have this juxtaposition between orthodox truth and what we observe. Orthodoxy and observations. I know this to be true, and yet this is what I see with my eyes. Here's wisdom and joy to navigate your life. Here's tyrannical authority. Here's hypocrisy and evil increasing. It's going to go well with those who fear the Lord. Here's injustices. I commend to you this kind of life in the midst of that. Do you see the juxtaposition? The Bible never ignores suffering and adversity, but it commends joy in the midst of that. See, I would say that this is why a lot of people leave the faith. And some of you are tempted to leave the faith because what he's calling for is for you to live by faith and not by sight, to believe the promises. Secondly, this confusion is tempered. Yes, it says it's, it's really, you're going to have this confusion because of this juxtaposition, and yet it's tempered because this is teaching something else. 
Look again at verses 12 and 13. You hear, you hear this little promise that right in the midst of this is, is, is justice ever going to happen. There's no speedy justice. Yet he says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he's not fear before God. What he is saying is, look to the future. Delayed judgment does not mean no judgment. Chapter 12, verse 14, the end of the book, it says this, God will bring every deed into judgment. Every individual life will be evaluated before the God of heaven and earth. Do you believe that? We want individualism, and the Bible says you're going to get it. Here's your individualism. You will stand before the creator of the heavens and earth, and everything you said and done and thought will be judged by the Lord of heaven and earth. Peter says that Jesus is appointed to judge the living and the dead. When I was studying for this, I googled one of my favorite speakers. Told you about him before. He's an elderly English Anglican preacher, theologian named Dick Lucas. And I just typed in Dick Lucas, final judgment. And it was this six-minute thing of him speaking about Jesus coming back. And I just got chills. I was like, oh. And he said this. He said, we think of the Old Testament as an ogre God that's just judging people. He said, that is absolutely the opposite. He said, the Old Testament foretells the coming of the Lord and salvation. And the New Testament foretells the coming of the Lord and judgment. Do you see that? In other words, all the Old Testament is pointing to this coming Savior that will be judged for us on the cross, who will take all of our religious hypocrisy, all of our tyrannical rule and the way we treat other people and use our lives to the detriment of other people instead of for them. All those things you worry about, you can give them to Jesus and they go to the cross and you are judged in Christ. And God sees you perfectly in that atoning blood. And that is freedom and joy and salvation because you are no longer condemned. Jesus was condemned for you. But what the New Testament cautions and warns and says is this. If you reject Him, there is no other salvation. You will not see Him as your Savior. You will live in eternal frustration because you will be judged by Jesus. The beauty of this is this. You don't have to be judged for your sin. Jesus was judged for your sin. The only, time, the only way that we don't let the doctrine of frustration take over and, and we take out our, our frustration on not just our enemies who maybe persecute us, but even our friends and neighbors or family members who we just get tired of. And the reason we don't is because of the way that God has treated us in Jesus. Turn with me. If you've been around, this is one of my favorite passages. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is one of those surprising, just like verse 15, he commends joy in the midst of this. This is not what you're going to expect. I just read it with somebody recently and they guessed the wrong word. And you're going to guess the wrong word just like I will. Chapter 4, this is how one should regard us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing if I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul's been judged by all these people. And he's saying, look, I don't don't really care how you judge me. Your face is not the ultimate face that I see, right? I, I live in the fear of God, not the fear of men. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now listen to this. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now stop right there for just a second. This is saying that God will judge the purposes of our hearts, all of them. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking condemnation. This is the kicker. Listen to what he says. Then each one will receive not condemnation, but commendation from God. That's amazing. Let me illustrate this really quickly. My brother, who has always been the faithful one, always been the obedient one, he has taken care of both of my ailing parents for eight years. He said, Fritz, I actually took pride in the fact that we did not have to put them in nursing homes. I did not want them to go to nursing homes I wanted, I wanted to serve them. I wanted to love them to the end. And he said, it crushed me when we had to put dad in a memory care unit. And I feel like we got the ball all the way down to the five-yard line and we fumbled. And I said, Danny, I hear you. I understand what you're feeling. Even if you did fumble the ball, It doesn't matter. Because way back on the other one-yard line, Adam fumbled the ball. And what you're doing is you're looking at your obedience or lack of obedience. I said, Jesus is the one that takes the ball and he goes all the way into the other end zone. We're just in the stands cheering and living that out. And God is going to look at you because he has worked change in you, verse 1. Do you see that word? The hardness of his face is changed. Do you hear the promise of hope? Well, God, sometimes I live frustrated. And I don't live with great joy. And I don't love people like I should. This is the promise that God is doing such a work in you that you will be changed into Christ's image. Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And his face right now, God's face, is shining upon you in Christ. Do you believe that? Because that's really what matters. If you see God's face 
as a judge that is out for you, you are going to have a stern, hardened, dull face. But if you see God's face, as the Old Testament said, shining upon you, lifting up His countenance upon you, being gracious to you, it will soften your heart. If you are in Christ, God is not angry at you. His judgment was taken out on His Son who did not see His kindly face. It was turned from Him so that God can look at us with joy and with radiance. Do you believe that? That is the Gospel. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, there is so much here. There is so much in the Bible. Lord, we praise You that regardless of the false images that, that run through our minds and our hearts, even as believers, that You are faithful and kind to lift up Your countenance upon us to be like a glowing mother who hasn't seen her children in, in months and radiates joy to receive them and love them. Oh God, change our image to You that we may rightly fear and love and honor You. Lord, because of how You see us in Christ, that we might be changed that we might radiate this joyful, biblical, wise living. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.